Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Cults, cons, conspiracies. These are a few of my favorite things. No, but seriously. (laughs) Books about cults, cons, and conspiracies are some of my all-time favorites. So for our summer limited edition quarterly box, we've bundled three cults, cons, and conspiracy books to share with you for a limited time. The first book is Hey Hun, Sales, Sisterhood, and Supremacy, and The Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing by Emily Lynn Paulson, the juicy tell-all memoir from a former top earner in a popular MLM, because nothing says cults and cons quite like network sales. The next book in this bundle is Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang, which is sure to be on the bestsellers list when it releases in May. This scathing takedown of publishing and publicity is perfect for readers tapped into the book internet. And anyone who loves an accidental con artist. Is June Song a con artist or a conspiracist, you tell me? Finally, we're featuring a book that's currently in development for film, The Honeys by Ryan LaSala. This is like Midsummer meets Mean Girls with a lovable gender-fluid teen at the center of a cult-like group of teen girls with conspiracies right under their noses. Pre-orders for our Cults, Cons, and Conspiracies box opens on May 1st for shipment by June 1st, and we'll only have 100 of these boxes, so make sure you order yours ASAP. No subscription required. Head to feministbookclub.com to pre-order yours today. Hey, everyone. I am so thrilled today. I am sitting down with Anna Bogatskaya. She is a film programmer, writer, broadcaster based in London. In the past, she was the film and events programmer at the BFI, where she curated many seasons and created the Woman with a Movie Camera Summit. Love that. She programs for the BFI, the Edinburgh International Film Festival, and Fantastic Fest. As a writer, she's contributed to BBC Culture, Sight and Sound, Little White Lies, Tortoise, Time Out, The Guardian, a bunch of other outlets. She's the co-founder of Horror Film Collective, The Final Girls, and hosts a podcast of the same name. Today, we are talking about Anna's book, Unlikable Female Characters. The subtitle, The Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. It's, It's such a pleasure. I'm excited to chat, too. So one of the first questions I love to ask our guests is, what does it mean to you to be feminist? Oh, gosh. It actually means demanding the same kind of treatment as men and not just for women, but for everyone else. I think feminism, for me at least, involves everyone. It's asking for equality for men, women, for trans people, for non-binary folk. It's about fairness for all the genders as opposed to just catering to this white male. This white men. I love the fact that you use the word demanding because <laughs> I think it plays into this conversation so well. Yeah. Demanding is such a 
an angry word. We are demanding equality. And today we are talking about unlikable female characters. And one of my favorite chapters in this book. So you outline nine different archetypes Mm -hmm. of unlikable female characters in pop culture. So mostly film and television. And one of my favorites is the bitch. And, you know, we hear, when we think the bitch, we always go to the devil's, the devil wears product. But there are tons of examples that you give. And one of my favorites that you give is the girl boss. The short-lived girl boss archetype. Yeah, it endures. It endures. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about how the girl boss has become like kind of this offshoot of the bitch archetype and what it has done to us as a culture. The girl boss is quite an interesting one. You know, you could write a whole book just analyzing the very short-lived period in pop culture where girl boss was an aspirational term. It was a a brand obviously started by Sofia Maruso that has expanded into a media empire of sorts. It was very closely aligned with pop culture feminism, with the big hashtag feminism, the big hashtag girl boss thing, it's t-shirts, it's mugs, it's personality trade. It's also an excuse to just be a dighead to everyone, including and very mostly other women. One of the things I try not to do in the book is actually get too much into real women. It's very centered on fictional characters, very much on characters that have created and perpetuated certain archetypes and have influenced us in real life. But going back to your earlier question, there has been some real life consequences to the girl boss empire. And that was also transformed very quickly into a very short-lived and very bad Netflix limited series. And almost as quickly as it rose up, it became shorthand for a very particular kind of offshoot of pick-me culture. It's an offshoot of white feminism. It's an offshoot of lack of empathy, of sort of internalized misogyny that is then being packaged into this like millennial version of lean-in work politics. The rise and fall of the girl boss could make for its own separate book. But one of my favorite characters that kind of, I think, exemplifies the failed girl boss is Siobhan Roy on Succession. And I write a lot about her in the book, mainly because I love seeing, as much as I love seeing women succeed, I love seeing women being allowed to fail as well, because the expectation of just being great at everything instantaneously is too much pressure. And Siobhan, bless her, is such a flop. She's a flop girl boss. She's a flop bitch. And as much as she wants things, she rarely gets them done. And I love the fact that from that era of pop culture, where you can just get away with being a heartless, cutthroat, bitchy, mega capitalist, but you know, with great outfits, you can then move on to one of the most one of the most intricately written female characters that we're currently seeing, Aaron Television, which is Shiv, which for me kind of takes so much of those most toxic elements of the girl boss and transform them, transforms them into someone so real and so nuanced. And that's one of the things that you hammer home in this book is that unlikable characters are more interesting. 
They're more Mm -hmm. interesting to watch. They give us permission to fail, which, you know, we only really ever see men fail and they tend to fail forward, right? And one of the things that I love about, especially this girl boss moment that you mention is the girl boss, the real bitch isn't the girl boss, it's capitalism. Yeah. And so one of the things about this book is, yes, we're talking about these archetypes, but you're also making really poignant statements about the state of our world, especially living in a white supremacist capitalist culture. Can you talk a little bit about how how you came to some of these conclusions? Like, what are some of the bigger conclusions that these archetypes in this book is leaning into? (laughs) I just used the phrase lean in, which is another girl boss phrase. (laughs) But you know what I mean. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. And it's a really interesting way to frame that question because as I've been doing some of these, and I knew this question would come up, is, and I asked myself this question throughout the entirety of the book, is what makes a female character unlikable? And the fact that I have to, it's become kind of a trope in and of itself, unlikable female characters. And every so often, every couple of years, there's an onslaught of articles, think pieces, opinion pieces, being like the rise or the fall or the the legacy or the insistence of unlikable female characters and why they're actually the greatest. They're the greatest because we tend to, they tend to be better characters. They tend to be more interesting to watch, more nuanced, more complex, just good characters. But instead of just calling them good characters, we call them unlikable because by definition, if a female character is anything except perfect or, and I hate this phrase so much, strong female character, if she's not that, she is by definition unlikable. So I spend this entire book essentially trying to unpick what that could possibly mean. And honestly, after over 300 pages, I cannot give you an answer because the answer does not exist because it is entirely a construct that we made up in order to create other reasons for us to hate ourselves or hate our avatars on our screens. Through film and media, through film and TV. Drop so subtitle, that mic. Drop that <laughs> mic. Holy <laughs> shit. That is so true. I mean, that whole subtitle, right? The women that pop culture wants us to hate, I think is really key because that those films and shows and, you know, someone else will write the book about literary characters because there's a much richer history of that and much less limited by this constraints of likability. But through the media that we see on our screens, especially, we are consistently taught by the very images we see, by how those characters are treated, by how they're punished or how they're presented to us and how we treat those actresses afterwards, the real life people who portray fictional characters, aka just doing their job. We are basically, in so many words, taught to despise them. What I've tried to do, as much for myself as for the reader is understand how these with some of which I've screened and done work around, be that through festivals or screenings or through my writing. So how are you telling me that I need to hate these women? And why should I hate them when, say, she's only guilty of being professionally ambitious or she has been wronged by someone or lives in an unjust world that consistently wrongs her and other women around her? And yet she's not allowed to be angry or upset about that. She's not allowed to be ambitious or she's not allowed to do the things that she wants to do, whatever those might be. 
And at the same time, there's, you know, more extreme examples. One of my favorite chapters to write was The Cycle, which looks at more extreme characters like Amy Dunn or Annie Wilkes, you know, or Villanelle from Killing Eve. So these are psychotic, murderous women. And yet it is still really controversial outside of horror and exploitation cinema, which is one of my other great loves, but I do not touch very much in this particular book. In mainstream cinema and TV, it's still so unbelievably transgressive, apparently, to see this, even though we will happily tune into, you know, the occasional hot serial killer series that we get fed or endless streams of true crime. But the minute a woman actually kills someone on screen in a fictional scenario, it, it becomes a topic of debate and of a feminist reckoning of sorts thorough and i'm reminded of the movie monster with charlize theron which was based on a true story and what the the conversation around that when that came out which was like 2005 2006 Mm -hmm. was she's a monster she kills people it's terrifying but also she's so ugly yes do you remember that i do very much it was charlie because she's like one of the most beautiful creatures on this planet and they made her so ugly and i think there's something to that and her unlikability as an ugly woman as well. And I think what's interesting is you are, you're tackling privilege in a lot of ways too. White women, pretty women are allowed to be unlikable. Mm-hmm. What are you getting at here? And pretty thin white women thin. as well. I mean, the the very quick fire answer is it's a world built for white people. It's a world built for thin people. It's a world built for cis people. It's a world built for mostly men. But the ones who wriggle in there most often than not are white women. So when I was looking at at cinema in this regard, there is just a different set of rules being applied to anyone other than pretty white, thin women on screen. You know, when there is this almost element of an angry woman on screen can be beautiful as well. But as long as she looks a certain way, then she's allowed to be angry. If she looks a different way, then she gets perceived and treated by the story itself, as well as by the audience, in a completely different way. Comparing to going back to the the psycho as kind of extreme examples, there's a reason why Villanelle, who is a wonderful character and very well portrayed by Jodie Comer, is a traditionally beautiful woman versus, and same with Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl, two very traditionally good-looking actresses portraying female killers on screen versus, say, someone like Annie Wilkes as portrayed by, oh my God, as portrayed by Kathy Bates in Misery in the 90s. You know, not to say that Kathy Bates is not a beautiful woman in her own right, but the whole point of that film was that she was unnoticed as a killer because people would not look at her twice and people would dismiss her by the way that she looked. There are kind of those unspoken rules, but the other thing to keep in mind with film and TV in particular, and I'd say film more than television, is that it is very easy for especially female characters of color to fall into stereotypes that are very toxic and very damaging that have been created about them by that very same medium. So I write a little bit about the stereotype of the Jezebel, of the angry Black woman, of the Dragon Lady. Those stereotypes were 
propagated by films. So it's not surprising then that those very same films then fail those characters or it takes them decades longer to evolve and to create nuanced characters for women of color. And I'm not just talking about nuanced here. I'm talking about those same quite fun tropes sometimes that we see, you know, the crazy woman in erotic thrillers was a huge box of a sensation in the late 80s and 90s. So was the killer, you know, as long as she's tall, pretty, blonde and thin, like Sharon Stone, Rosamund Pike or Jodie Comer. But there is just not the same space allowed for women of color. It has changed with television. And like I mentioned before, outside of the realm of specialist films, of horror cinema, of exploitation cinema, and all its different offshoots, like with everything else, they just have to work so much harder. And that goes hand in hand with the lack of roles for screenwriters, for producers, for directors, because the people who then write those roles need to work alongside the people who embody them on screen. Yes. You make a point early on in the book that the whole kind of so what about this book is that movies and television are our modern folklore. And I would also add celebrity culture as part of that modern folklore as well. And I have not seen this point made. Like I have several degrees in gender studies and media. And what I have not seen before is that your book takes the actor into account and these roles affect the actor and their kind of reputation in Hollywood for eternity. The most interesting example you give is Mae West. Can you talk about, you know, what unlikable roles did for Mae West in particular and kind of using that as an example to talk about these unlikable roles and their effect on actors generally? Yes. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because I really was hoping that by doing this sort of quick fire journey through the history of cinema and TV, through the prism of unlikable female characters, you can discover filmmakers, actresses, writers from pre, you know, the year 2000, because they were so fascinating, especially in the pre-code era. Mae West, complicated real life person as well, especially in her later years. But when she was at her creative peak, in the in the early, late 20s and early 1930s, she was unbelievably smutty. She was so smutty, in fact, that she got sent to prison because she performed in New York and she did a play called Sex. Her most well-known roles on screen after she transitioned into cinema were all essentially playing a variation of her persona. So she was playing an extension of the Mae West persona, which was a very brash, very outspoken, incredibly witty kind of woman who very unabashedly just lusted after men and had them queuing up to service her, essentially. And she was unbelievably successful and popular in a financial sense as well. So she had big crowds, she had quite a significant amount of power in Hollywood when she was at her peak. And part of that came from that almost forbidden appeal of, oh my God, a woman is talking in this smutty way and she's talking about sex and we understand what she means. We understand the wink, wink, nudge, nudge of it all. And very much at that point, kind of the history of movie stardom and celebrity culture is quite interesting the way that it changes and then doesn't really change at all. People identified her with that character. 
So by the time that the, the, the Hays Code started to be implemented and the censorship around American cinema started to be tightened, she was censored and effectively gagged. You know, her scripts had to be neutered. They had to be cleaned up. She had to portray characters that, you know, got married in the end. And that offended her audience. Her audience expected the smuttiness and the sluttiness from her characters, but she wasn't allowed to give them that. So essentially, the thing that they, the thing that made her popular and successful was taken away from her. And that was the whole point of her success. And her audience didn't really allow for her to evolve into different kind of characters because she was so intertwined with that persona. In fact, when people discovered that she had been married in her real life at some point, it drew great outrage because she was very, uh, very much positioned as a single woman. And the idea of her being married just went against their image of her. I think that that was so well done, your discussion of how art influenced the artist, because we often think the other way around. And so So thank you for that. That was something fresh and new that I hadn't seen before. In addition to these nine tropes that you outline, I have to ask, like, what is your favorite trope to watch or write about or if they're the same or different? Well, they're probably going to be different because I quite like, I think the bitch is my favorite character because she's a catch-all. Because when people don't know what to call you, they're going to call you a bitch. It's the number one insult for women, and it's also been the insult that's been most reclaimed. And I'm very well aware that it hasn't been so universally, and that it has a very particular negative connotation to different women in different ways. And and that is absolutely, absolutely understandable and fine. But it is, I think, the word that has the biggest presence in pop culture, from music to TV and literature and film, obviously. So... That is my favorite one because there's so many different shades to a bitch, you know, from Chivroy to Miranda Priestley in The Devil Wears Prada to almost any character portrayed by Betty Davis, quite a lot of the Joan Crawford ones as well from the 1940s. And even, you know, the the girl boss era and the female flop as we see in Succession. But I would have to say that one of the most interesting ones to write about is probably The Crazy Woman. Just because our understand the mad woman as well is such a, a persistent image in culture in general, in literature, in our music, and the image that we have of a woman in mental anguish has changed so much over the years. And a lot of that image is fed to us through screens, you know, through what we consider to be crazy. And how we talk about that has changed. One of the films that I write a lot about in the book is Fatal Attraction from the late 80s. And in fact, Glenn Close, one of my favorite actors ever, has consistently portrayed characters that have been called bitch and crazy, unlikable, the whole lot. And she has been incredibly nuanced and empathetic in the way that she speaks about them. What's interesting about her character of Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction, which has now been reinterpreted for a new limited, glossy limited series by Paramount Plus and is now played by Lizzie Kaplan, is that the key change that we've seen as a society is the way that we talk about mental health. So even those images, the performance, the way that we address or can define or see someone in mental distress and that the language or appreciation of that has radically changed is 
in men's. And, you know, I won't go, too much, go in too much about the series because there's a whole lot of other stuff you can talk about that show alone. And, and you know, that definitely would deserve an episode in a way that it hasn't changed that much, despite our understanding of mental health having really advanced. That's the, the chapter and the kind of characters that really make me exercise empathy the most and a lot more self-reflection because there are many times that very usual behavior gets deemed crazy just because it comes from the mouth of a woman or a teenage girl and you are assumed to be acting crazy when you're just and you know going back to my initial word demanding understanding or demanding or asking for help and the fact that that has become kind of a a villainous figure at the same time as a pitiful figure in pop culture i find quite interesting and then there's obviously the whole kind of you know sexy sad girl element that comes out a lot in Lana Del Rey music videos and you know some especially mid-2000s films and shows which I also find intriguing in a different way where you know again going back to what we were talking about earlier who gets to be sad and it usually tends to be the same kind of person and kind of that aesthetics of melancholy that we get in films like The Virgin Suicides and in the music videos and the music of Lana Del Rey, I found to be kind of very contrasting to the other images of crazy women that we get from the very same pop culture. So I'd say that was my favorite chapter to write mainly because the imagery and the type of character that we define as crazy changes so much throughout the years. And also the image of her just continues to evolve and taps into different kinds of fears around womanhood. You mentioned like we're starting to have a kind of a broader cultural conversation around mental health. Do you think that as we become a little more aware and empathetic, God bless Gen Z for pushing that envelope for us, do you think that characters are becoming more nuanced or are we just getting better at seeing the nuance? Oh, that's a great question. I actually think it's both. I think we're definitely better at seeing the nuance and we can apply that to what has come before. We can be more understanding and and literate and, and empathetic in the way that we see different characters in pop culture, in books, in celebrity culture as well. You know, there's a whole genre of recently maligned women and rewriting that history, which we have seen through podcasts and books and shows. You know, even Fatal Attraction, essentially, the 10-part TV series is all an exercise in, hey, what about, what about the crazy woman from the film? Is she actually that crazy at all? And at the same time, I do think because of that consciousness and because of a generational shift as well, we are also writing characters that are deliberately more nuanced and kind of that those elements that were left to say the performance, the nuances and the layers of the performance of choice, or to the subtext in the script or in the visuals are now very often the text. They're pretty much out there in the open. That's what they're concerned about. That's what they want to explore. So I think it's a little bit of both. So for someone who who maybe like me is like not super into film or not, or is like me, is like super into television and not film who might see this book and be like, well, I don't, I'm not going to get all these references. So like, why even bother? What would you say to that potential reader? Oh, please don't worry. I wrote it for people who are not film nerds like me. 
Yes. This this is not an exercise in me outsmarting the reader about how many, you know, subtitle films I know and that are not available on any format or to watch anywhere. It's very much an invitation to think about female characters, to think about what we think of as unlikable in other women, be they real women, be they celebrities who are kind of pop culture figures in a different way, or be that fictional characters that we see on screen. And also, hopefully, an invitation to discover some of these films. Amen. I I have to say, you know, one of the few films that I go hard for, you mentioned quite a bit, it's Promising Young Woman. I think it is absolutely one of the most brilliant films ever made. And it makes me want to go back and rewatch it. Oh, Um, yeah. And I have to go back and watch a bunch of Mae West now. Like, how great. Go watch watch I'm No Angel. Go watch The Last Seduction from the 90s. Go watch Jawbreaker, which is an amazing teen movie. Go watch Election, which is one of the most interesting teen movies. It's with Reese Witherspoon, and it's one of those films that kind of proves the point without ever saying that it's doing that, because her character, Tracy Flick, was very much until, you know, the usual reconsideration and usually female critics writing about it, was always considered to be the villain of the film when she's, in fact, a teenage girl who's a little bit ambitious, but then gets, you know, involved with adults who absolutely should know better. And somehow she ends up the villain. Mm, she's got to be punished for being an ambitious young woman. Exactly. This has been, this book is so great. You are so great. This has been such a fun conversation. And I hope it's been fun to listen to as well and just geek out on women in media. It's like, obviously, one of my favorite things to talk about. Oh, thank Um, you so much, Renee. Where can we find you on the internet if we want to connect and follow your journey further? So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented. I also host the Final Girls podcast, which is all about horror and women. I also do a succession podcast with my friend Mike called The Successionistas, and we're recapping the last season right now. I've also got a newsletter that I will definitely update very soon, definitely this month, called Admit One. And you can find that on Substack. And everything else usually that I write or any other podcast that I do or guest on, I promote on either Twitter or Instagram. Amazing. We will link all those things in the show notes. Anna, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Ashley a feminist book club content contributor. I'm joined today with Anissa Gray. She is a journalist at CNN. She is the author of The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. And she joins us today to talk about her novel, Life and Other Love Songs. Anissa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. My first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? Mm. I think I use feminism through the lens of how I understand gender inequality. And uh, certainly for me, being a woman, having grown up a girl, that's a lived experience. So I, I see feminism as pushing against those gender stereotypes and all of the things that would hold women in a place of inequality. Thank you. And what is Life and Other Love Songs about? Life and Other Love Songs is a story about What happens to a family after the husband and father disappears? Um, Oz, the husband and father, is by most accounts uh, 
pretty ordinary guy. He goes missing on his 37th birthday. He leaves behind a wife, Deborah. She's a gifted singer, but she's struggling now to come to terms with life as a suburban housewife, which is not the life she had envisioned for herself at all. He also leaves behind a daughter, Trinity, who he adores. And as you can imagine, this completely upends this family. But as the story unfolds and we come to learn what happened to Oz and why, that shock only deepens until they find a way to make peace. One thing that I appreciated about Oz is his full arc. Something that we're seeing in society is how Black men get to grieve, get to come to terms with trauma and that they have trauma and there's a name to it. And we see this with Oz Oz in the book. How did you craft him as a Black man in understanding and longing, particularly with his unchecked trauma, his desires, and a bit of jealousy? Yeah, Oz was a really difficult character to write. But at the core was sort of my observation of how, you know, I had brothers and cousins and nephews, my father, how Black men tend to carry trauma silently. And well, a lot of men do. They, they tend to carry trauma silently, and it can come out in some very unhealthy and sometimes explosive ways. And you see that with Oz. And part of the through line in Oz's story, and significantly the story of his brother, because they were raised in the same home, was what does it mean to be a man? And we see Oz, we see his brother work through that question in very different ways. And, and to your point, that's at the heart of watching Oz's art, you know, as a complete person come to terms with the hurt in his own life and the harms that he causes because Oz, Oz isn't an easy character. He does harm. That was what was difficult with dealing with Oz to sort of bring him through as a round character and have readers at the end. And I don't know if he felt this way, but be able to understand exactly where he was coming from. And I, I certainly, I love Oz. Mm-hmm. And I, I've heard from other readers too who've said, you know, I hated Oz there for a minute, mm-hmm. but in the end, I loved him. Yes. And I think the going into reading this book, it's easy to say, like, he's selfish, he's self-centered, he's a nasty human, how dare he do this? But when you write, can write a character who gets a full perspective and you kind of check yourself and your biases and your sort of ways that you enter people, then it helps you to understand that this man is broken and he yes. didn't really have the tools to help him, even though he had love, he has Deborah, he has Trinity, he has his mother, but there's still something that he hasn't been able to really figure out about himself and to heal. So it takes a skilled writer to give a character that arc or else he's just someone who left and, you know, we find out what happens with him. Yeah, that's, that, that's 100% true. Oz was a real challenge to write. And it, it does my heart good to see readers coming away seeing this full human in all of his frailty. And I think that's the important note, his frailty. 
Men can be frail. In fact, there's a line in the book where his cousin who loves him, she describes him to Deborah as, as being fragile. Yes. Yeah. There are some lines in this book. I just had a bunch of tabs <laughs> next to them, but it was just, it was truly gospel. I say the least. So my next question is, there are moments in the story that don't directly say what happens, yet we find out later in the story what happens. Was that intentional? It was, yeah. Even the way the book is structured, you know, while not, you know, writing a thriller or a cliffhanger, I'm also wanting to keep readers turning the pages. (laughs) And you do that. By A, for me, first of all, character development, you know, attaching to these characters in the book, caring about them and caring about their story, but also in how you tell the story. So this book is structured in a way where there are, it's not linear. It's, it's broken up and we move backward and forward in time where we may see something and then later we come to understand why it happened. Yes, and I think it adds to the character development, and it doesn't automatically name what has happened to the person, so you mm-hmm. think that person gets to understand what happened to them without you as the read or I as the reader knowing exactly what happened. That person gets the space to grieve and to understand what's happened to them, and then we, as the reader, get to get the name and get the fullness of what happened. Yeah, that, yeah, that, I, I would say Deborah's character in particular, you sort of see mm-hmm. how she's behaving in a moment and, mm-hmm. you know, you feel for her. And then you come to see with her exactly what happened. And it is, it, it's just destabilizing. Yeah. And speaking of Deborah, in this, in the course of this book, there's a bit of, well, there is recovery as well as rediscovery. How did you want to give Deborah power? This gets back to your question about feminism. So when I sat down to write this book, I wasn't thinking consciously about approaching things from a feminist perspective. But I was writing as a woman who knows what it is firsthand to experience gender inequality. So with Deborah's story, you see a woman who knows she's a gifted singer. She knows exactly what she wants. She's working very hard to get it, but she finds herself thwarted by powers that are beyond her control. It's an experience so many of us have had. And you see Deborah at this turning point moment where she realizes a betrayal that stopped her. And so over the, from that moment on, we see Deborah grow And she ends up in a place where success looks far different from what she thought it would be when we first meet her in the book. Yes. And I think that also is a testament to the title of this book, being being life and other love songs, and that love songs come in different varieties. There's love songs that are heartbreaking. There are love songs that are tender, that are love songs that are coming to grips with what has happened to the person who thought that they had love and and nourishment and whatnot, but it wasn't what they thought it was. So it it's life in its fullness and how it manifests in various ways. Yeah, that's 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 one hundred percent true. And you you bring up music because Deborah is a singer. Music is quite central 
to this book. I mean, she she literally has a soundtrack. Music means something to her. And every song in the book, in fact, means something to me. And and they tell their own kind of story. Yes. I normally don't have a favorite character in books. I try to keep it neutral and just understand everyone's story. However, Tommy was my favorite character in this book. And Tommy is Oz's brother. We get enough of Tommy to where he's not an overpowering character, but he's not a side character either. And I really just loved his experiences. So what attributes did you want to give to Tommy and what experiences did you want him to have? Well, it's interesting, Tommy, you're very good. My wife, Tommy, is her favorite character. As someone who, I'm, I'm a lesbian, I grew up with this homophobic messages. So Tommy's experience is rooted in, 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 a, in quite an extreme way in that. And what I wanted to do with Tommy was I, I just wanted to take Tommy on the journey of happiness through some really difficult, dark moments. I love Tommy too. I just wanted to see a full, round, gay male character who went through a tremendous amount of trauma, as so many do, so many of us do, but come out okay, not just okay, but happy. Yes. And he's such a compliment to Oz, and not because they're brothers, but because Tommy, even if he didn't have family trauma, he is living as a man in his power and his sexuality and who he loves. And that is enough on its own because there are so many people, as you said, who, you know, have homophobic tendencies and want you to be unhappy and don't want you to shine. But Tommy gets the space to do so along with the familial trauma that he not only experiences, but that his brother experienced. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a shared trauma. And that relationship between Oz and Tommy was important for me to get right to. They are brothers who adore one another. And as for all of his life, this is another sort of burden that Oz carried, another part of his trauma, is he saw himself as Tommy's protector. Mm-hmm. And he saw himself as a failure. Because he could not prevent the abuse of the dominant word. Forgiveness is a theme in the book. And how important was that, especially for the characters' arcs and development? I think it was central. I think given what so many of these characters went through, I don't think that they that any of them could have moved forward without some level of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness looks different for everyone. You know, forgiveness may not be, you know, all is well, we move forward together. It may be that, you know, I've come to peace with things, but I need to do things in a different way here. And I think you see different versions of forgiveness in this book. I could have read a whole book about Trinity in the newsroom in high school. (laughs) Just getting her ambition as a growing young adult, but, you know, she's still a child. And we meet her in such an interesting way with her being in the newsroom. And that progresses into her career. How did you develop her arc and how important was hers? So a couple of things there. Trinity is, she's an only child. So she is sort of the balancing point between her 
parents in a way that some only children are. And she's also quite mature because she's essentially surrounded by adults, her grandmother, her uncle. She's not around a lot of children. And the children she is around, Tranny grows up in an all-white suburb, and she's the only Black girl. So she grows up with a sense of alienation. She has one best friend from school, and, and, and they are, you know, they're right or die. They're, they're friends for life. But largely, she felt pretty isolated. And some of that I borrowed from my experience. I grew up in a working-class white neighborhood. And, you know, apart from my siblings and, you know, another Black family, you know, we were it. So mm-hmm. there's a very sort of particular experience. And Trinity also grows up roughly in the same, my coming of age years. So in the 80s, 70s and 80s. So Trinity is infused with some of my, some of my experiences having grown up in an all-white mm-hmm. environment. Yes, and I'm glad that you said that Trinity is the balance in between her parents. She is, yeah, absolutely. My wife is, and I'm one. I'm one of five kids, so I, you know, I'm. I grew up in a pack. Mm-hmm. My wife is an only child, and I've mm-hmm. observed her relationship with her parents, and it's quite different from what I experienced growing up. Yes, and how did you decide the story's timeline and the time period and time periods? There's there's multiple periods in the story. Yeah, there were a couple of things. One of the main things is that Deborah, as a singer, I wanted to set her in that very glamorous Motown era. Apart from the fact that I love that music, that music was hugely consequential in this country coming through the 50s and 60s. That sort of cemented the time. And I wanted a longer time span. I wanted to move through the 80s and early 90s. So that's essentially how I set the time frame. Yes. I also want to mention that a character drives a white LeBaron. And my grandmother has a white LeBaron in her in her garage. So the, I was able to immediately relate to that. And also not that the car, not just as a status symbol, but as a status marker, that, this, yeah. that the character was able to have this car. Today's version would be like a Corvette or something. But just yeah. like a drop top, convertible, <laughs> white, pristine, beautiful, able to have that car. Yeah. So they're they're also in Detroit too. So yes. you know, you know, American cars mean something. Exactly. And then my last question for you is where would you like our audience to buy life and other love songs from? What what are some of your favorite bookstores? Oh geez, I love independent booksellers they perform an incredibly important role in the communities if you have one near you i would encourage you to support your your local independent bookstore anissa gray thank you for joining us to talk about life and other love songs thank you so much ashley thank you for tuning in to today's episode of feminist book club the podcast want to be part of the club here's how you can join us Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.